Well, welcome to Sojourn and Merry Christmas to you. Uh, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, just grateful for you guys to be able to come gather with us tonight on this Christmas Eve. Uh, if this is your first time here, we're just grateful that you came, whether it was from an invite from a friend or a family or you just found out that we were going to be here tonight. We're just uh, grateful that everyone's here uh, to be able to sing these songs, as we said, and now to open up God's Word together this morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2. What Monica read earlier is what we're going to look at tonight. And so if you need a Bible, we have some Bibles for you. If you just raise your hand, somebody will bring a Bible to you just so you could uh, read along with us and look at God's Word. And we'd love to give that to you this evening as a gift if you don't actually own a Bible. So feel free to take that home with you uh, if you don't have a copy of God's Word. The story that we're going to look at tonight is one of my favorite stories in the Bible for a couple of reasons. It's one of my favorite stories because it talks about the birth of Christ, uh, but it's also one of my favorite stories because it reminds me a lot of my childhood around this time. Every Christmas Eve, my family, after we would go attend a Christmas Eve service, uh, would go back home and, and getting, getting ready for bed, would read these verses before singing some songs uh, and then going to bed with a lot of anticipation and excitement about waking the next morning to spend time together and open up some presents as a family. But over the years, one of the reasons I really appreciate this story all the more is something that I've noticed that's jumped out to me in studying this and growing a little bit and getting a little bit older, and that is this. There is a mixture in this story of juxtaposition and paradox all throughout these verses. Now, those are big words, so what do they mean? A juxtaposition is the act or instance of placing two or more things side by side, especially for comparison or contrast. A paradox, similarly, is a statement that is seemingly contradictory or opposed to common sense, and yet is perhaps true. The person, situation, or thing that combines contradictory features or qualities And as this story unfolds and these elements come into view, what we discover is that it's in the details of this story that we find our greatest hope. It's in the details of this story that we find our greatest joy. And so as we open up God's word together tonight, I hope, I pray that if this story is new to you, if you've never actually heard this story out of God's word, that you'd be captivated by it tonight and that your response would be one of faith and worship And for those of us that have heard this many, many times, have read this text, have heard it read over, maybe even preached to us before, I hope that for us tonight, I pray that for us tonight, that the response would be the same, that we would respond in faith and in worship. What we'll see as we look at the craziness of these contrasts and conundrums that are all throughout this text is that the one thing we cannot do is be indifferent. And I hope that your life, my life, will look different because we've sat under God's word tonight. So before we do that, let's just pray and ask God to do the work that only he can do uh, through his word. Father, we are grateful to be here tonight. And Lord, my prayer is very simple tonight. As we sang earlier, I pray that we would come tonight to adore you. I pray that we would just come and adore you, that everything we do from here on out, that tomorrow as we spend time with friends and family, and not even just these two days, but for our whole life, Lord, would you help us to adore you? And so I pray as we open up your word tonight that you would allow your spirit to do that work in our hearts, in our minds, for your glory and for our good, so that we might adore you in all of our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
We'll go ahead and open up your Bible to Luke chapter 2. As I said, we're going to be in these first 20 or so verses uh, this evening and look at what Luke has to say. We at Sojourn have been in a series this Advent season looking through the first two chapters of Luke. And one of the things that we've learned uh, as we've gone through this is that the world is a very dark place. There's a lot of darkness, uh, a lot of brokenness in the world. But the promise that's made to us over and over and over again in these beginning chapters of Luke is that a sunrise is coming, that light is going to shine into the darkness, and this light is going to bring life and light to those who sit in death and darkness. We've learned that the Messiah is coming, that something the people of Israel have been longing for, have been waiting for, for a Redeemer to come who would set them free. There's a lot of anticipation And as we jump into the story here, we see that all of this anticipation is coming to fruition. It's time for a son to be born. It's in these first seven verses that we see one of our first joyous juxtapositions in the text. What we read earlier, what we heard earlier is that the most powerful man in the world, Caesar, has sent out a decree that all of the world, all of the world should be registered. This man thinks he's that powerful that he can command all of the known world to be registered. The census is to be taken so that Caesar can flex his power, can get taxes from all of those who are subject to him. So everyone has to go to their hometown Now, that might seem kind of crazy for us who a lot of us move around and move to different places. But for most people in this period of time, they would have been they would have been born, lived and died in one place. But in this instance, what we see is Joseph is not one of those people. Joseph has to travel and he travels from one small town to another. He goes from Nazareth to Bethlehem because he is from the line of David and Bethlehem is the city of David. So Joseph goes, but he doesn't go alone. We find out from these first seven verses that Joseph goes with Mary, and and Mary is the woman that he is betrothed to, to get married to. And Mary is pregnant, which might seem scandalous, but something else we learned in Luke chapter 1 is that an angel has come to Mary and has told her that she's going to bear a son and that his name is to be Jesus. He will be great, the angel says. He will be called the son of the most high. He will have the throne of David and he will rule and reign forever. We learn that Mary, though, will not become pregnant by Joseph, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. So that this son will not just be any son. He will be the son of God. But Mary, at this point in time in the story, is not just a little pregnant. She's very pregnant. But in Caesar's kingdom, in Caesar's empire, there are no passes for health issues There's no doctor telling Mary that she shouldn't travel because she's so close to giving birth. And so she goes with Joseph. But while they're in Bethlehem, the time comes for her to give birth. And I love that Luke is so matter of fact in talking about this. Look at verse 7. Luke writes this. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. He doesn't give any other details. As if this is just a normal occurrence, he just writes these facts. But I love what's going on here. Look at the comparison of what's going on here. You have the most powerful man in the known world seeking to show that he is great by counting all of his people. But at the very same time, you have the God of the universe showing how great he is and how much he loves his people by becoming one of them. It's a joyous juxtaposition because we have a picture of meekness and humility smack up against majesty and power. 
And the reality of this hopeful paradox is that the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Son of God who created the world, the promised Messiah, is not born in the palace. He's not born in the place of luxury. He's not born with pomp and prestige. He's not even born in a run-down inn. He's born in a place where animals stay. And he's laid in a place where animals eat out of. The one who Gabriel, who the angel that stands in the very presence of God, came to Mary, the one that he said would rule and reign forever, is born in the humblest of circumstances. God shows his greatness through the humility of the Savior's birth. Now, surely the greatest news of all time, the fact that this promised Messiah that the people have longed to hear about, have longed for, have been waiting for, would make national headlines. This news would go out everywhere that God would seek to make sure that everyone knew about this. Maybe he'd be born in Jerusalem, but we don't see that that's the case. So maybe he's going to announce it some other way that to the the religious leaders and influencers so that word would get out quickly. But God does the exact opposite. And this leads to our second juxtaposition in this text. See, the scene suddenly shifts away from King Jesus being born in this humble place to shepherds in a field watching over their sheep at night. In verses 8 through 14, we learn about these shepherds that are, that are out there alone. Now, shepherds are normal people. They, they had normal jobs working uh, essentially what we would label as a, a blue-collar kind of job in their society There's definitely nothing special about them. And even in fact, that sometimes people would look at shepherds and consider them to be outcasts and unclean because they dealt with animals in this way. But it's to these very shepherds that God decides to reveal the greatest news. An angel comes to them and it says the glory of the Lord shone around them into this deep, dark night comes a piercing light and they are absolutely terrified. Absolutely terrified. I mean, that'd be the case for us if we were walking out to our car this evening in the pitch black of night and all of a sudden the light shines and there's an angel come to us, we would be freaked out. But the angel assures them, tells them not to be afraid. He says to them, look, I haven't come to hurt you. Instead of what I've come to do is give you good news of great joy. And it's not just good news for you. It's good news for all people. And here's this good news. Verse 11, he says this. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He, he's come for you. This promised Savior has come to you. And he's not just for all people. He's specifically even for you, shepherds. That's personalized for them. Now the angel tells them three things about this child that's been born. He says that he will be a Savior. He will be a deliverer. One who delivers from sin and death. He will be the Christ which is just another way of saying Messiah. He will be the promised one of God that the people of God have longed for for hundreds of years. He will be Lord. He will be king over all things. I mean, this is insane news for these shepherds just minding their own business, not even seeking this out for God to reveal that to him, to them. The one the people have longed for has come and the shepherds are the first ones to hear this glorious news. Now, the angel makes it clear in verse 12 that he wants the shepherds to go find this child. And so he says he'll give them a sign so they'll know that it's him. How how will they know which child is the right one? Verse 12, he says, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. This wouldn't have been anything out of the ordinary. Babies would have been swaddled up after they'd been born. So they've got that check. Nothing really different here. But then he says, and he will be lying in a manger. You'd think that would give them a bit of pause. Wait, did you say a manger? 
Like the thing that animals eat out of, a food trough, the the savior of the world, the king of creation, the Christ is laying in a place that animals eat out of. But they don't have much time to think or ask questions because look at verse 13 and 14. It says, and suddenly, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased Praise him who's above all things. Why? Because he, come, he has come to us to rescue us. He has come to bring peace. This world is not in peace or at peace because the world does not follow God. But the angels say, look, peace will come to those whom God pours out his grace, pours out his favor on. And this peace is not just about the absence of conflict. It's about completeness and wholeness and restoration and reconciliation that God brings to a broken, dark, jacked up world. But the joyous juxtaposition is that the greatest news, the most significant news, the news the world has longed for, has needed to hear that the Savior has come who will bring peace to chaos and light to darkness is announced to a small and lowly audience. What is God doing? Why would he do this in this way? Why would the Savior be born into these circumstances? Why would he announce this news to these shepherds and not to someone else? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25 helps us with this. The Apostle Paul writes this. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. If I were going to write the story about how God was going to send a savior in the world to rescue it, it wouldn't be by sending a a child born as helpless, speechless, weak, in a dank, dark, smelly stable. But that's kind of the point. The world looks at the way that God does things and says foolishness. It's foolish for the son of God and savior of the world to be born into such humble circumstances but it's the very thing the world calls foolish and weak that is our greatest hope and joy. And here's why. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. The author of Hebrews says this about Jesus. He says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, meaning you and me, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. That means Jesus is 100% human, is 100% man, while still being 100% God. And then it says this, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Therefore, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, to satisfy the wrath of God for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Listen, Jesus did not seek to save us from a distance. He came to us. He became weak to make the weak strong. He became helpless to give aid to the helpless. He became poor to make the poor rich in God. He became like us to rescue us. See, the greatest need of every single person is to be set free from sin. And sin is rebellion against God. All of us have rebelled against God. 
seeking to go our own way instead of following him alone, instead of worshiping him alone. Maybe we even give lip service to God, but the reality of our lives says that, no, we want to be in control. And this rebellion leads to death. And Hebrews 2 says we are enslaved to it. There is no way out on our own. See, God is holy and just, and because he is holy and just, sin and rebellion must be dealt with. But here's the good news. Jesus comes to stand in our place, to be a substitute for us. He comes to satisfy the righteous wrath of God. The only way that he was able to do that, though, is for him to be just like us, to have flesh and blood like us. But the reality is that we're not saved by Jesus's birth, but by his death. But in order for there to be a death, a life giving death, in order for there to be resurrection, to give us new life, there had to be a birth. See, this hopeful paradox, this joyous juxtaposition for us is that the king of all creation left perfect community and perfect glory to take on all the frailties of humanity. He suffered as we suffer. He was tempted as we are tempted. Yet in the midst of darkness, he does all of this without sinning. He doesn't need light in this dark world. He is the light in the dark world. And Jesus is able to be a faithful high priest who does not offer the blood of bulls and goats, but offers himself instead as a final and full sacrificial substitute for our sin. He stands in our place. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, For our sake, for our sake, he made him, he made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As Jesus was nailed to the cross, God took all of our sin and laid it on his back, laid it on his shoulders, so that he became sin for us. He transferred it to Jesus. And by doing that, he was able to transfer Jesus' righteousness to us so that when God looks on us, if we have faith in him and what Christ has done for us, he no longer sees us as rebels. He sees us as his children, his righteous children because of Christ. Jesus destroys death by dying. And through his death, we have life. That is crazy. That's amazing news for us. The joyous juxtaposition and hopeful paradox is that the king of kings and lord of lords was born in an animal room and did die alongside of robbers. This is glorious news for you and me. Because the one who deserves all glory and praise, the creator of the cosmos, the highest, is made the lowest for us so that we, the lowest, could be raised up to be with the highest. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 say this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons, once enemies, now children, because Christ has come. What this means is, is that the hope of the world is not found in white houses, capitals, or castles. It's found in the manger. It's found at the cross. It's found at an empty tomb. But this leads us to another question. If this really is the greatest news in all of the world, why in the world is it announced to a bunch of lowly shepherds in the middle of a field in the middle of the night? See, the joyous juxtaposition and hopeful paradox is that God brings good news. God brings the greatest news to all people. 
It's not reserved for the elite and worldly wise. It's not just for those who know a lot or have a lot. It's not for those who look a certain way or speak a certain language. It's for the simple and the ordinary. It's for all people. As Jesus was born into humble circumstances, so he brings this good news to the humble. It's for people who know that they don't have it all together, which means it's for you and it's for me. You cannot hear news like this and not respond. That's true for the shepherds. And I want it to be true for all of us here tonight as well. Look at how the shepherds respond. Verses 15 through 17. It says, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. I want to call us to respond the way the shepherds did that night. The shepherds respond in faith and they respond in worship. After the angels depart, they look at one another. They don't deliberate. They don't discuss. They don't deduce whether this is worthwhile or real. I'm sure still trembling. Maybe their minds are swimming a bit. They make a quick decision. We have to go see this baby. Verse 16 says they went with haste. I can imagine, picture these guys just booking it across the field, jumping fences, running through creek beds, running all around the city of Bethlehem, the town of Bethlehem, looking for an inn that has a place for animals attached to it where a manger might be so they could see this child the angels have told them about. They run to see the Savior. They run to see him, to find him. And just as the angel said, they find him lying in a manger and they tell everyone what's been told to them. They tell everyone what's been told to them. They respond in faith to the good news that's been preached to them. And so I want us to respond in faith tonight to the glorious good news of Christ. I want us to believe that he came to us to die for us so that we might be forgiven and set free. That we might have peace with God. The angel's message is a personalized message for for the shepherds. He says that this child is born unto you, but it's also for you tonight. It's not an ethereal truth to believe. It's not a philosophical system to follow. It's a matter of life and death. It's a matter of light and darkness. It's about you and your relationship with the God who created you. Just as God has orchestrated the details of Jesus' birth, Jesus needed to be born in Bethlehem. That's what the prophet said. And Caesar thinks he's in control, yet God uses Caesar to bring Jesus to the place where he needs to be born. Just as he's orchestrated the details of Jesus' birth, perhaps God has you right where you are, right here, right now, so that he can do something extraordinary in your life. See, we tend to think and our world tends to tell us that God is for the good people. When, in fact, what God says is that he's for needy sinners in need of grace. See, the great paradox of your life is that being a good person does not get you to God. Because the reality is is you're not good and you can't be good enough. Even if all the good that you can muster up in your own life is there, sin still remains. And if sin still remains, then you cannot be in a relationship with God Now, if that were the end of the story, that would be bad news and a bad story. But praise God, it isn't. And God has made a way. See, the angel did not announce good news to the shepherds because they were good. He announced it because God is gracious. As Jesus was born in a stable, he must be born in you. 
Light has come into the darkness of this world, but it also must come into the darkness of your heart and transform it to make you brand new. It's when you acknowledge that you're not good, that you've rebelled against God. It's when you confess that you need to be rescued by God through Jesus. It's then and only then that you're actually able to receive the greatest good, which is an eternal relationship with the holy and almighty creator. As one pastor puts it, if you want God's grace, all you need is, is need. All you need is nothing. If you want great God's grace, all you need is need. All you need is nothing. You can bring nothing to God. The shepherds had nothing. They weren't even looking for him. Yet God announced this good news and with haste they ran to the Savior. On the night Jesus, the night of Jesus' birth, he was, his birth was largely ignored. Not many people knew about it. Even the room that the shepherds went into and told them all about, not even everybody it looks like from the text even really heeded what they said. More, they scratched their heads maybe. Let me just call you tonight to not ignore it. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, God can deliver you. God can help you and God can save you. So run with haste to Jesus. Turning away from sin And turning to him, believing that he lived a perfect life for you, died in your place that you could be forgiven and set free. Run with haste to Jesus tonight. Respond in faith like the shepherds did. The shepherds didn't only respond in faith, they also responded in worship. Look at verse 20. It says, And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. After hearing the greatest news that the Savior, Christ the Lord, had come, running to him, seeing him, they glorify God. They praise God. They follow the example of the angels, the choir of angels who came to them. If you're like me, like I said earlier, you may have heard this story a lot. You may have read this story a lot. But tonight, don't allow its familiarity to dampen your fervor. Come and stand amazed once again at the grace and mercy of God that has been shown to us and given to us in and through Christ. Light has come into the darkest dark of this world. That's amazing grace to you and to me. See, the response to this good news should be great joy because this good news is never old news. It's never old news. It never gets old to read this story. It never gets old to think that God has come to us to rescue us. It brought you from death to life and it sustains you now and forever. You once were lost with no hope in this world, but have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. If you've placed your faith in him, the humble child is your mighty savior who has come and will come again to rule and reign forever and ever. So sojourn, I don't want us to get more excited about opening presents or giving gifts. I don't want us to get more excited about our team winning the big game or our year-end bonus. All of those things are fleeting and passing pleasures. I want us to run with haste to Jesus, not once, but every day. Every day. Being blown away that God would rescue me. That while we were still sinning, Christ would come to me. That Christ would die for me. Run with haste to Jesus. As we close our service this Christmas Eve, we're going to take communion and we're going to sing some more songs together. And all these songs that we're going to sing, they highlight the joyous juxtaposition, the hopeful paradox of Jesus' birth. But as we sing some songs that might be familiar, I don't want these words to just pass through your lips without impacting your heart 
and being processed through your mind. One of the lines from the song that we're going to sing is familiar to so many of us. It says this joy to the world. The Lord has come. Man, does that blow you away? Do we, do we truly mean that when we sing that joy to the entire world? Because the Lord is come. Man, that's amazing news. Let's be blown away by that truth and together say amen tonight. So those of you that will come forward to the table tonight, as you come forward, may this not be rote religious action, but may it be a response of worship for you. May you give praise that God has come to you knowing, believing, rejoicing that as you eat the bread and drink the cup that Christ's body was given for you, that Christ's blood was shed for you so that you might be called a child of God. The highest was made the lowest so that you could have peace now and forever. That is amazing, amazing grace. Now, if you're not a follower of Christ, I would just ask you not to come forward tonight to take communion. Taking the bread and drinking the cup does not save you. When we come forward and do that, we are declaring that we are desperate for Jesus. That we've placed our faith and trust in what Christ has done for us. And so if you have not yet done that, I just want to ask you not to come forward, but instead just to pray. Just hang out in your seat. Pray. Ask God to reveal himself to you. And I also want to just encourage you to do something else. I want to encourage you to respond in faith tonight. As other people come forward to receive the elements, I want to encourage you just to head to the back of the room. If you want to respond to the gospel tonight, there'll be a few people standing over in the corner by those back doors that would love to talk with you, pray with you, answer any questions that you might have. If you want to know more about what it means to know Jesus, if you want to ask God to save you tonight, they they can help you just understand what that means and just pray with you as you ask God to do that work. There's no magic words to be said. No special prayers to pray. It's just you in in true faith in your heart, crying out to God, God, I am a sinner and I need your grace. So if that's you tonight, if you want to respond, as others come forward, just head to the back of the room and you can talk to some of the people from our church tonight. Run with haste to Jesus. Now is the time to do that. And those of you that will come forward, you can come forward when you're ready and you can tear off a piece of bread and take a small cup to drink. And what Jesus has done for you will be spoken over you. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that we can call you Father. And Lord, the only reason that we can call you Father is because Jesus, your Son, came. You so loved the world that you sent your only Son into this world that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. You, Father, sent your son in this world, not to condemn this world, but to, be, to save this world through him. So we give you thanks for that tonight. I pray that this story would not be a story that is just familiar to us. That if it's new to us or familiar to us, Lord, I pray that it would hit us in our hearts tonight. That you didn't phone in salvation from a distance. You came to us as one of us to die for us, that you might save us and adopt us as your children. We thank you that Christ has come and we praise you that Christ will come again to rule and reign forever where there'll be no more sin, no more death, no more pain, no more suffering. Lord, we long for that day. But until that day, I pray that every day would be a day for us to respond in faith and respond in worship because you deserve all of that. We love you, Lord. We thank you for loving us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.